Welcome to Second Win, the podcast where we uncover the stories, methods, and modalities of women and men who have found their purpose while walking this earth. Sometimes they found their second win by accident, sometimes by hardship, and sometimes by intent. There is always something to learn from others and really isn't finding our own purpose what we are all looking for. I know I am. And that's why I'm hosting this very podcast. My name is Wendy Charles McGuire. Thank you for listening and let's get to it. Second Wind, meet Lisa Kifavor. She is a really cool woman, an MSW, a grief activist, a speaker, a professor, a writer, a podcaster, and a social worker. And I found Lisa through a former guest of mine on the Second Wind podcast, Mindy Corporon, who herself faced an unthinkable tragedy and since then has helped open the field of grief discussion, especially in the workplace. Check out her episode from August 4th, 2021, entitled One Sunday Afternoon Changed Her Life Forever. Grief is a real part of being human, and I haven't met anyone ever who has not experienced some loss or some grief for some reason. And this is still something we just don't talk about, and it's such an important subject. And enter in this podcast I found through Mindy called Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. And I was like, oh, I need to listen to this. So I started listening to this and oh, I'll tell you what, this is such an important podcast, such an important subject matter that Lisa has jumped into, but her whole life has brought her to this. And I'm so excited to have you on the podcast today. Welcome, Lisa. Thank you, Wendy. What a lovely, lovely introduction. I appreciate that. And I love that we have Mindy in common, also a force to be reckoned with and a beautiful soul and and doing also showing up in the world with real purpose too. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Oh yeah, absolutely. Grief. Oh, it's such a, it's a horrible thing. And every day. Yeah. And it's hard to put, I think there's so much wrapped in it. There's so many layers to this onion of grief in so many ways. You know, one thing I thought about, we've talked before, but I thought one, one place to start just because just of what you said right there, like grief feels like it's five letters, but it contains like a multitude. It feels so big and hard to define and wrap your brain around. And years ago, I developed this grief metaphor that I feel really helps paint a big picture, sort of helps people understand what grief is. And I wonder if I just start with that, offer that to you and to the listeners. Yes, let's do that. Yeah. Yes. So, yes, uh, so this is the grief metaphor. As I said, I developed, I can't even rem- remember now years ago that I think encapsulates the expansiveness and the pervasiveness of grief. Okay. In so okay. our lives are built on the stories we tell of the millions of experiences that we have throughout our lives. That's who we are. Mm-hmm. We are storytellers mm-hmm. and a death loss or some other devastating loss. It could be of ability of homeland, right, of relationship, even of trauma. It's akin to the Mm -hmm. manuscript of our lives being torn to shreds and then handed back to us with no instructions on how to rewrite or live our lives. And grief is the journey we're on as we rewrite and live into this emerging story of our lives. And when you- Yeah, there's no instruction manual. There's no instruction manual, but when you think about- On either end of it. Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. On either about, end of it, like, 
the person who is experiences and the person who wants to help the person who's experiencing it. Yes. Sorry. I I had to say that. (laughs) Yeah. No. And I think the other piece that's important, I hope about that metaphor is it helps us understand the ways in which grief can happen as a result of all kinds of losses, not just death loss, which is Mm -hmm. a way we like to contain it very much in, in Western culture anyways. But I think it also begins to speak to the f- why grief is so messy and it takes time and it takes new forms and shapes because and why it feels why it affects us cognitively and physically and emotionally, spiritually, relationally, yeah. all these things. Because when you think about sort of the operating manual of your life being torn to shreds, of course, it takes time and it and it's not neat or linear and it takes all these shapes right. and forms. So just wanted to sort of offer that as the context in case your listeners, because I hear this all the time. Well, I haven't experienced X, Y, Z. You know, we grief thief each other like this profound loss. I don't, you know, you've lost your husband or you lost your friend. But we've all, by the time we're adults, we've all experienced some form of loss. And there's some grief to be acknowledged there and to be honored. Right. Didn't you have someone on your podcast that was talking about it starts when you're a child and it can be something as simple as losing your teddy bear? I mean, and not knowing how to navigate that. That's like, that's their first addressing of kind of of it being shoved under the rug, right? Sure. Because we think as parents, oh crap, when my son lost his little silky pillow thing, I was like, well, hail, I'm in trouble now. Let's just downplay that. Yeah. And it's such an important you know, what you're speaking to is, is how I start my show with every guest. And as I teach as a professor in the work that I do is we all develop these grief beliefs, like what we can call grief, what grief should look like, feel like. And a lot of what we learn is not from what our parents or those adults in our life said or did, although sometimes it is. Sometimes it's what parents didn't say and what they didn't acknowledge and the yeah. conversations we didn't have. So then we grow up holding ourselves to account of that, well, that's not valuable or worth grieving because nobody ever acknowledged it or they only allowed me to be sad but not angry when really both Mm. things are. So yes, when I have, when I talk about grief, when I'm on the stage as a speaker or even when the guests I choose for my podcast, I'm really trying to get people to come share experiences of grief across kind of the landscape. So that might be somebody who had a catastrophic injury, but lived, but is grieving the versions of themselves they were in the before, right? right. Or even something, right. some of the early, you know, I ask every guest the earliest memory of grief and sometimes it's a pet loss, right? Or yes, or a teddy bear. Sometimes I had a poet on one time talk about that her first really profound experience was in grief was with this tree in her yard that she loved, 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 loved. And a uncle mm-hmm. came by and basically it was a new fledgling tree, kind of broke it and and killed the tree basically in front of her. And she really had this profound Hmm. sense of there was this thing of beauty, this thing that was alive that I loved and I lost. So I Hmm. I really just offer all of that up to say, I think we think it's important that we give ourselves a more, we widen the aperture, you know, if you're a photographer to think about grief in its more expansive form, because then we're not denying it or pathologizing others when we can really start to hold the truth that we all experience it in these very different profound ways. Well said. Well said. And one of the questions I think we want to get to as we as we go through the story is how can we change the discussion? Yeah. yeah. Right? And how can we help 
the discussion move forward. But let's first, I let's first <laughs> find out about you and why you would even want to deal with this subject. It's not like happy. It's not yeah. Like, I wasn't like a little kid and be like, I'm writing a children. I'm going to grow up and be a grief activist. Everyone, yeah, that wasn't really you know the right. childhood dream. No, for sure. Right, right. So unfortunately, and we all have trauma. That's one thing I learned from listening to your podcast and having some of my own guests on my podcast was we all can escape trauma. Yeah. And it, it it's all different from for all of us and how we, and you growing up had your own. Yeah. 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 You know, I had a guest on one time, John Powell, phenomenal thinker at, from the Belonging Institute. Of course, say this to me. And, and, you know, when I asked about early memories, he said, it's all really a story we tell. So when we look back, I'm going to weave a thread right for you now. And I said, tell this story. Mm -hmm. But of course, we don't necessarily see that in the moment. It's only in the sort of looking back in the narrative we draw. But yes, to your point, I think part of how I ended up now being a grief activist, what predated that was kind of what happened to me and why I became a social worker in the first place, because I didn't mm -hmm. initially specialize in grief. And I did experience, first of all, I come from parents who had experienced trauma, including my father, who's a survivor of the Holocaust. But I did experience my own trauma at 15. I was sexually assaulted. I was raped when I was 15. And the, the, and one of the things that happened immediately after was even though people, adults in my life tried their best, there was a real clear lack of holding space and bearing witness and honoring what it was that I had gone through this profound experience, this profound loss, this profound loss of sense of safety and agency in the world. Mm. And that I think is really when I look at like how I think there was like a moment when I knew then there's got to be a better way to show up for people in their suffering, in their pain. And even though I was sent to professionals who in theory were sort of trained to do this, they just weren't. And then me not feeling held in my trauma was a compounding unnecessary suffering. So when I think about sort of the through mm -hmm. line to even getting me to be a social worker in the first place, and also just thinking about the traumas that my family and others went through that didn't discuss because culturally we don't talk about hard things. There's a lot of sort of a lot of what wasn't being offered up in the world that was a very interesting through line to me eventually going back to graduate school, becoming a social worker. My thesis in graduate school was around holding space and bearing witness practices. That's how long this has been a sustained meditation in my mind. So I want to offer that as kind of when I think about the early part of my story, I was not a 15-year-old going, I'm going to grow up and be a grief activist. Because first of all, by the way, right. that's not a title anybody has. But no. right. I think that, right. that was there. And just to clarify to your point about sort of we all have traumas, you know, there's continuing to be new and more research. I am not a trauma expert, so I want to just sort of preface that. But as I read and learn and study under different people, Gabor Mate has written an incredible book recently, mm. The Myth of Normal. We experience big T's and little T's. And one of the things that's profoundly important for us to understand, because we do rank order them, like 9-11, oh, that's a trauma, but neglect, yeah. that's not, you know, like we do this comparing, but one of the things he says, and it's just a reminder to your listeners, is that trauma isn't the event that happens to you. Trauma is the way in which you experience what happened to you, which is a 
good, which means two okay. different people could go through the same, yeah. witness the same plane crash or something. And one person would develop what ends up becoming something like PTSD, which I did develop from my own early traumas and some no. wouldn't. But the reason I think that's important, not that we're going to get so sidetracked on trauma, I just want to offer this up to folks right. is that if it's what happened in response to what happened based on our history, our attachment, our, I mean, there's just so many things that kind of is in the background, then we can do something. About it. Then there's healing. Yeah. So if trauma is just something that happened to you, you can't go back and change the fact that you survived a war or a plane crash or that you were raped, right? You can't do anything about it. But when we right. think about trauma, just as we think about the wounds of loss as being our internal reaction, very normal and of and, and necessary to protect our psyche, our body, our emotions. There's no judgment about it. But if we can recognize that, then we can say, okay, well, then there's some opportunity for healing. Because there's more, part of what trauma is, is total lack of control. And when we think about it as this yeah. internal response, now, okay, now we're getting somewhere. Now we have the capacity to, to heal. And I think the same thing about how we think about our losses. We can't change the fact of our losses, Again, sort of specific losses like the death of somebody, but also losses of relationship or homeland. When I think about people who fled, you know, their mm. country of origin, there's so many losses. We can't necessarily change the loss, but we can attend to with care the sort of healing that has and the consequence of that loss. And that's, I think, the difference. So that was all to say that sort of that early trauma and that, frankly, which happens a lot, lack of being met with what I needed was what got me into social work, which I didn't get into till my late 20s. I was a researcher first in my early 20s. And then as I got into, I was doing foster care, adoption, crisis intervention, family services, public housing. You can imagine a lot of grief and loss in all of those fields. I mean, the very nature of foster care and adoption, right, is grief yeah. and loss. No one yeah. in my field was talking about it. No one talked about grief or loss. More more so just going through the motions, getting to the next thing. Oh, they'll be better when yes, kind of thing. Absolutely. And yeah. also, I think really when I look back again, not out of maliciousness, but there was no grief and loss training. Now I am the professor of loss and grief in the School of Social Work at University of Texas at Austin. And I teach that course. Amazing. But, you know, when I was even in graduate school, we weren't offered a course on loss and grief, which can you imagine? Every single human being you're ever going to work with experiences multiple episodes of loss and grief. And yet the people who were meant to serve them in their most vulnerable situations weren't trained on it. So that was some of the early seeds, I think, that got planted to me later becoming what I now do. The work that I do as a grief activist is I had the suspicion that even in our field, and we did a lot of things to help, shout out to my fellow social workers out there. I love the field. Yeah. We were missing ways of showing up for people, questions, support. Sometimes I think we were pathologizing people's expression of behaviors as being problematic instead of being a very normative response to loss. So I think even my experience in those, in that first decade before the death of my husband, where I was working with people who experienced various levels of loss, but realizing we don't quite have the vocabulary. We don't quite have the way of thinking about this. There's something, it felt very incomplete. Okay, would you say it's sort of like, we want to 
kind of just say, okay, this happened. Okay. Let's just, okay. Compartmentalize it and stick it over here. And and then you can get on with things. Yes. And I can help you get on with things. Did you feel that that was, is that, was that, is it still kind of where we're at? I mean, it is. And that's one question, right? Yeah. And the second question is, how did you know when you were so young, you weren't given what you needed? Yeah. For your. That's a good question. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Were you were you finding that you were just always searching for something more and 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 not finding it? And how did you co- realize this? Let's answer that question first, and then I'll talk about the sort of compartmentalizing and and where we're at in okay. our culture and just newsflash answer. Yeah, Perfect. we're still there, unfortunately. I think which is, <laughs> which is why I'm still a grief activist. Spoiler. Spoiler alert. <laughs> You know, yeah. I don't know, of course, it's all very, I'm saying this now as a 51 year old. So looking back, of course, I don't know that I could have said with, at as, as a 15, 16 year old with that same articulation. I felt very isolated. I felt very alone. Mm-hmm. I felt very unseen. I felt definitely the whole topic was, I felt everybody else was ready to move on and assume that I could go back into the world being normal and that this horrific 24 hours wasn't going to somehow completely impact the trajectory of my life. Again, not necessarily anybody being explicitly like move on and, you know, stop talking about it. It was a lot of the implicit or the not bringing up or the just focusing on sort of my behaviors as opposed to kind of the underlying. I mean, I, I didn't do trauma work about it until I was in my 20s and 30s. I mean, nobody even Gosh. named it as a trauma. They were kind of trying to do cognitive behavioral therapy with me around the consequence mm-hmm. of that. So I think how I knew it was definitely more intuitive than intuitive than some maybe, you know, again, I have vocabulary for it now, but I didn't. And I think that's really important for us to all think about. I mean, this is a whole topic I get on for another show, but we think about ourselves as having a mind that has emotions and then we have this body. But our, we are mind-body. These are not two separate things. And so I think culturally, and then, of course, when you experience a trauma, we're encouraged or discouraged to see it all as one thing. And so we dismiss some mm. intuitive knowings we have that our body shows us either through sickness or aches or pains or pressure or tightness. But also, you know, that gut instinct is literally, that's your gut is your brain too, right? So I think When I think about my 15, 16 year old self, I had some intuitive sense that something was still wrong, even though I had done the thing and went to therapy, check. I was showing up in my relationships weird, my whole comfort with sexual, you know, at the time when you're supposed to be sort of exploring your sexuality. Like, I think I had some, I had some knowing, but it was Mm -hmm. much more sort of embodied and intuitive and Mm-hmm. And nobody was mirroring that in how they were showing up for, hey, dude, you know what I mean? So that's, I think, right, how I right. knew it. It wasn't so, like, intellectual or sort of clear. So, And I right. think that happens for a lot of us, again, whether we're talking about trauma or just talking about the unnecessary suffering we go through in grief because of our sort of grief illiterate world. A lot of us know what we need. We know what our body is craving for. And, again, when I say body, I mean body, mind, heart. This is all thing, but we are sort of discouraged from that intuitive knowing, you know, it's all very, does it fit the formula? And this gets us to your other question, which is, you know, 
are we still in that place where we could try to compartmentalize and move on from a, a loss event? Unfortunately, the answer writ large, I would say, is yes. And there's so many reasons for that. I think I definitely saw that when I was working in a more clinical nonprofit, when I was working as a clinical director, which is the position I was in when my husband passed. But even all these intervening years since, it's been 11 years, there are so many ways in which we, again, explicitly and implicitly reinforce this. It's a thing that happens. You're allowed to cry for a minute, maybe be angry, but not too loud. Only if it's a death loss, you talk to a therapist or other grief people because it's rude to get your pain on other people. And then you right. move through this five stages of grief, which, by the way, is not five stages of grief. That was not the intention of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross in some linear, neat checklist fashion. And then voila, in a year, if it's a really bad loss, you're done, right? And so, and that's the sort of mentality, if you even are taught anything by, about grief. I just interviewed a palliative medicine doctor on my podcast, and I asked her, did you ever have a course or learn anything about grief and loss in medical school? No. No. Yeah, right? I could have told you that. So, so to my point, like when I talk about our grief illiteracy and the sort of danger of the single story we have of grief, which is that very, one I just told you, that sort of very neat compartmentalized ones, it's so insidious because it's the only it's we don't talk about it much. But if we do talk about it, meaning we see it in a movie or we see it in a TV show or somebody mentions it, that's the only story. So then whether you're the individual going through grief or you're the clinician, that's the only point of reference. So when your lived experience feels very different, like it's messy and a year later I'm crying out of nowhere and our blah, blah, whatever your story is. Or I'm grieving something even though I chose to leave it, which, by the way, we can grieve things that we choose to leave. When it when it is right. inconsistent with what we're experiencing or what we're witnessing for somebody else, then we feel bad and shameful and we want to hide it. Or if we are a clinician and we see somebody acting out in weird behaviors or making poor choices for themselves or et cetera, et cetera. And then we keep telling them, just try this thing. You're going to feel better. Just do this thing. Instead of looking them in the eye and saying, this is a really hard thing that happened to you. And I'm not surprised that six months later or a year later or on the anniversary, I worked with a woman whose daughter was murdered and I saw her for <laughs> years. Thankfully, I had enough intuitive knowing I feel to support her. But like, instead of saying, oh, don't look at her pictures or just focus on what you do have or all the things that we say. Oh, the little, you know, all the little, of, like they'll be in a better place yeah. now, which someone told me right. in the hospital as I was taking my husband off life support, by the way, someone said that to me, We're, we can talk about that in a minute, but instead yeah, of doing, we'll talk about that, instead of doing all of that, that's where I think that's what happens. So I think there are pockets and places. I think mental health field in general is getting better about starting to evolve and acknowledge the realities and the complexity of grief. I think as a culture, in some ways, the pandemic forced a lot of people to come yeah. to grips with different kinds of grief and loss, including the ambiguous losses that many of us felt in addition to the act, to the grief of the death losses. So I think there are right. pockets. There's other grief activists and grief thinkers, you know, in the field that I love to, to resource and talk about. But generally, 
we're still pretty grief illiterate. And the danger of that, the consequence of that is pretty profound. No, that's why you are so important. That's why people like you who are out there doing it, just like alternative medicine, our, our medical system does, did not want to, you know, hear it. They still aren't taking nutrition courses. It's still not, Hey, what are you eating? That's maybe making that acid reflux happen. Let's just give you the Prilosex, whatever it's called. Let's just give you the drug. So it's the same thing. And I think we need just more of you and Mindy and people like that. And and I think as people hear and start to understand, it's going to be, we're going to see more of it, right? You're a pioneer, really. I appreciate that. I don't know. Among many. Yeah, I mean, among among, we need more. Obviously, we do need more. I mean, it's why I love that I get to teach a whole cohort of students every semester to just show up for themselves yeah. in their own grief, in a different being in a different relationship with their own grief and loss, while also preparing them to be in different relationship as a grief and loss supporter, whether they're going into social work or pre med, which I have students, or just as a friend, as a partner, as a parent someday. This is how we do it, sort of one, which is why I started the show, which is why I like going on stages, which is why I'm writing the book. It's one conversation at a time, one person feeling seen and held in their grief and being given permission to acknowledge their grief as messy and complex and valid. Then that person might show up differently for someone in their life and their life. And that's the domino effect. That's the ripple effect that's the right ripple there. Effect that I that yeah. I was really intent on when I sort of really took this leap from being sort of a general social worker in different spaces to doing this work full time was like, I've got to be creating all of these methods of, of creating this ripple effect because I just, I can't not do anything else to be honest. That's yeah. You had to do something about it. You got that intuitive gut push. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately I had to experience some other profound losses in between right. to do it, which happens all the time. That's usually how people end Let's up. Let's talk a little bit about that because people need to know, you know what you're talking about. <laughs> you know, a lot of times, depending on who you talk to, and I'm having a shaman on soon who, who told me in our pre-interview, she goes, I go, where did you get all your training? Where did you do this? She goes, my life was my training. Yeah. Yeah. All that, that shit I went through. Yeah. You have to go through it. Yeah. So she said, everyone that's an expert in their field has usually been through it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So let's talk a little bit about that. You're, you're doing your social work gig. You're moving right along. Working my way up. Tell us about working your way up. Get married. I will tell you about that. Yeah. Let me tell you. And I can't wait to tell you because I love talking about Eric and my friend, Joe, both of whom I lost. But I want to say something like I, when I first started doing this work, I thought, you know, I have this MSW, so there's the letters, whatever, behind my name. And then I have these lived experiences of loss, losses. But I really call myself a grief activist activist, and not a grief expert on purpose. I was very deliberate about my words. In part, I was trained in narrative therapy, so words and language are really important to me. Mm, but yes. because I don't, I don't think we know what all there is to know. And it is so unique and complex. Mm that I don't want to be out there being an expert. I want to be out there pushing us to ask ourselves questions and to be curious and to sort of, so anyways, just as a little tangent, if you ever, you know, see me written about or hear me, I, I was very deliberate in choosing that word activist, activist on purpose. Yeah. So 
so yeah, so I had had this MSW. I, you know, actually had turned out and met the love of my life when I was still a researcher. His name was Eric Kefauver. That's how I ended up with his name. Phenomenal human being, really an incredible man. And actually, I was with him when I said, hey, babe, I got to quit my job as a researcher and go back to school and become a social worker because this is what I was meant to do my whole life. I know it. And he, without even blinking an eye, was like, of course you do. Yeah, go. I mean, he was phenomenal. He was a phenomenal human being. So he was alongside of me that whole time as we, as I started to work, as I said, first in foster care and then adoption. We were married. I was early in my social work career. We adopted our daughter. So we were a family of three all of a sudden working in different spaces. And I ended up working in a family services where there was a lot of unmet needs. And I just kept bringing it to the executive director and saying, we need, we need a food pantry for these people that were providing services. They can't afford to go across. And she'd say, okay, well then build a food pantry. And then I'd say, we're case managing clients, but they don't have mental health therapy because we don't have affordable mental health in our community. And she said, okay, we'll start. And I said, can we do something? And she said, whatever you want to do. So I started a sliding scale mental health. Oh my gosh. I kept going to her seeing problems. And then unfortunately, I'll give her a shout out, Anya Abramson, the director of that nonprofit, kept, had such faith in me and really wanted to serve our community. She just kept saying, I mean, later on, I was like, I got to stop going to her with these problems because <laughs> I'm gonna then, I keep, then I keep creating things. Not me. I mean, and my whole, I had clinical staff and, and students that I was a mentor to. So I'm not claiming all the credit. I had some amazing folks, but I was very immersed in the work again not necessarily naming grief. We worked with refugees. We worked with older adults. So of course there was just this pervasive grief. So I had, I already had this instinct that I think we're not talking about everything we need to be talking about. Mm -hmm, but then mm -hmm. in 2010, my previously kind, warm, athletic, smart, brilliant, wise, caring husband began to turn into somebody we did not recognize. We went from doctor to doctor, were continuously dismissed as being put on meds, taken off meds. It's just a mental health. He was just having a midlife crisis. We knew very differently. He became a completely different person. Our lives, to be honest, became quite scary. He was just not, I got into the details, but he was not a person neither of us really recognized. And in the summer of 2011, finally, after over a year or almost a year, he finally ended up with some thing that happened where we, he went, to the doctor and said, you've got to run some kind of scan. They had never run any kind of scan. Please run a scan because something is like, something is not right. Called into the ER where he was summoned immediately when the scan results came back. It turned out he had a grapefruit-sized brain tumor that had shifted his brain stem. So sort of finally he gets the scan. I get called to the ER. He's there waiting for me. And the doctor's showing us the scan and it's a grapefruit sized brain tumor oh that God. has shifted his brain stem. And they didn't know how he was walking or talking. They were completely the size of a grapefruit in his brain. And there wasn't. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I mean, he had gained a lot of weight. He had, I mean, there was a lot of, you know, external things, but anyhow, so this is unfortunately not as uncommon as you might think. Mm -hmm. And so between that day and the day he died in my arms was 17 days. 17 days. So we had, yeah, yeah. So he went in for a surgery, had a 13-hour surgery to remove as much as they could. You know, we were thinking, we didn't necessarily think it was going to be a great outcome, but we thought we had time. And thankfully, they let me in post-op to see him. So I was 40 at the time. He was 44. 
We had just run a half marathon the year before, like very healthy, active people. I got in to see him after that surgery. You know, they kind of wake him up and take him off anesthesia and say, who's this? And he said, that's my wife. And he mentioned our daughter's name. And by the time I made it back to the hospital, like four hours later, I'd gone home to see our daughter who was seven at the time. My parents had come to stay. He was in a coma. They did another 14-hour surgery and he never woke up. And basically, after testing and leads and everything, they realized he ended up having a series of catastrophic strokes across his whole brain center and that he wasn't going to wake up. So oh my God, there I was with my husband, you know, I've sort of let, had everybody come say goodbye, had to make the decision. Thankfully, we had a conversation between the diagnosis and the surgery about what would he want. And he did not want to be artificially kept, you know, which is a bizarre conversation. To be yeah, having, obviously, but we should all be happy, yeah. by the way. Yes. I'm a big proponent of that. And had my daughter come say goodbye. Oh. I had them take out all the leads and all the machines and try to make him look as you know, normal. I mean, he didn't look normally. His head was bandaged. Anyhow, and just to tell a quick story of that, just to speak to what we were talking about before about this grief belief. So people came to say goodbye. And, you know, my friends had been amazing. They were showing up at the hospital with me. You know, they were all incredible. And I, still to this day, I just love them and my family members too. But I do remember, you know, speaking to the sort of grief, like the things that we say to, I think we think we're trying to comfort other people, but we're really actually just trying to make ourselves being around somebody yeah. in pain feel better. Yeah. You know, one of the friend's husband said, well, don't worry, he's going to be in a, in a better place. And I thought at the time, I'm going <laughs> to, well, we can swear. Yeah. I told you that I was, I'm going to fucking punch you in the <laughs> face right now. Like I'm pretty sure you're, and I, he knew I was not religious. Eric was not religious. So, and I'm not bash. If you are, that's amazing. But he knew we weren't. So to, presume that to tell me that he, he being with your God someplace in heaven is better than, is better being than with him me. being alive yeah. with me and our seven-year-old, I'm going to go with no. Right. You know? Right. So anyways, and I know people, people sometimes hear this and they're like, God, you're so critical. And so, well, first of all, worst moment of my life. But second of all, the point just being sort of like this, our lack of grief literacy means we are, have become so unpracticed about being, holding space and bearing witness for people's being in pain. What would have been so much more helpful is I see you. I hate that you're having to go through this. I'm here for you. Yeah. Instead of trying to wrap it up in a neat little package. Exactly. So there I was 40, all of a sudden a full-time only parent, returned to work after two weeks because our culture doesn't have systems that actually acknowledge the long complexity of our grief. And now I was the only person to earn money to take care of my daughter. Mm. I was back at work trying to function again. It was a very full-time piece of work. But one of the things I even, again, another seed, when you think about the mm -hmm. path was like, people tried to show up for me. They didn't really know how to show up. They wouldn't mention his name because they thought talking about him would make me sad as opposed to actually recognizing that I'm thinking about him all the time. So you not talking about him just makes me feel shameful or bad for thinking or talking. Yeah. About him. Yeah. But, but I also really started to see my clients in a different light, which is like, where are all of the unacknowledged for them places of grief and loss in their life that they ended up with these coping strategies or circumstances or situations that what they really needed was someone to sort of 
acknowledge, I'm sorry you were neglected or that you were left from your relationship or that you lost your mom when you were young or whatever the loss experiences were. So yeah. that was my real lived experience. And, and my friends did their best. They really did. But they also lost Eric. And they're also part of this grief illiterate culture that didn't know exactly how to show up or what that looked like. So that was kind of that time. And, and it was around that time, maybe a year and a half later, you know, I had, we were a group of couples. So it was like eight couples and then seven couples and Lisa. That's what I used to call uh, myself. We were like the seven couples and Lisa yeah. show. And they were amazing. The husbands were like beautiful people, just lovely. But I remember I ended awkward. up making this new friend. Yeah. It was just, it was awkward. Yeah. And then we'd be like at whatever parties and people would be like talking or complaining about their spouses. And I was like, I can't relate. And I didn't know, like, when should I take off my wedding ring? And then oh, people would ask me, where's your husband? And then I'd have to, you know, like the whole shebang. So I was at a party with this new friend that I had made that another friend, when the friend introduced, she was a guest on my podcast too. She tells the story. When our mutual friend introduced us before she introduced her to me, she said, by the way, that's Lisa. And she just, her husband just died. Go meet her. You know, kind of like, that was like my identity. Yeah. Her husband just died. Anyway, so I was at this person's house, Autumn's house. Which changes how that person is going to come talk to you right off the bat. Exactly. Thankfully, Autumn is a deep thinker, had experienced her own loss. And right. she even said back to that person, like, well, that was a obnoxious thing to, you know, again, good intentions, bad consequences. So I'm at this party. I'm actually laughing, which we don't talk about much, but sometimes you end up experiencing joy before you think you will. And then you feel guilt, you know, so I'm laughing. I'm going about the party. I reach in my purse and I never have a printed out. This is 2011, 12, probably. So we weren't printing out pictures. Like we didn't have paper pictures, but for some reason, I really still to this day do not know how I got in there. I reached into my purse to get something to maybe to get my old school phone. And there was a picture of me and Eric in my purse. I still do not know how it got there. And I pulled it out and then I just immediately start like ugly crying, Oof. ugly crying in the middle of this party of people. I know almost nobody. And my friend Autumn sees me as beautiful as she is and just so thoughtful. And she kind of whisks me, you know, holds on to me and whisks me away. And I just looked at her and said, grief is such a sneaky bitch. Yeah. And that's, I mean, sort of how the show came. Mm -hmm. My forthcoming book is going to be called the same thing. But that was one of the first moments where I was like, we got to talk about yeah. this because I can't be the only person who's going about their life and who's bought into this. I've moved through these stages. And now if I must be able to be laughing in a party, then I must be to the stage where I'm done with this. And then bam, something happens. And that was probably that next seed that was like, oh, this is an act. Reality is not matching how people are talking about this in the world. And that happened. That was a profound loss. Followed just, I want to say, I need to check my dates on this, maybe three years later by our mutual friend, Joe, who had been living with muscular dystrophy. He was also young in his 40s. Was with him when he passed away. He died. I was by his bedside when he died. Went back to work. I was had co-founded a cancer nonprofit at that time. I had relocated states because I needed a fresh start, went back to work in this cancer nonprofit and still recognized like nobody at work knew how to talk about it. People in my life didn't know because also 
it's your husband dies, that's one thing. But when it's a friend that dies. Oh, it's a totally different category, right? Right. right? What do we allow? And what it is a different kind of grief, but also culturally, what are you, what do you have permission to grieve? You know, what are you allowed to? So that happened, you know, a few years later, again, more seeds were planting, like, I've been a public, and I at that time had become a public speaker and a writer because I had co-founded this nonprofit. So I was trying to get us on the news and radio. And so I'd learned how to be an articulate storyteller. Of course, I'd been this clinician. I'd been a therapist for years. I'd witnessed and experienced both these profound losses, but also the ways in which culturally we were not, not dealing with it and the suffering. Yeah. We're not feeling with it. And all of that sort of ricocheted on itself. I was at yet another nonprofit doing different work as a public speaker, but not mission driven, not my mission, not my mission driven. And I ended up with a turned out to be fine, but a scary health concern that really freaked me out. You know, I was still single, only parent, you know, and that was kind of the final straw where I thought I can't have gone through all this personal experience of grief and loss, witnessed all this professional grief and loss been a writer and a storyteller and a narrative therapist and witnessed the clash between the realities of grief and the cultural stories of grief and not do something with it. Like when I got the okay that I was going to be okay post-surgery, everything was fine. It was good. It was like, okay, Lisa, you're not dying right now with your life, right? You're not. So you better just get out there and do it. And this is 2019, 2018, 2019. And I said to everybody in my life, I'm quitting my secure, I mean, albeit not paying well because it's still nonprofit, but I'm quitting my sort of secure nonprofit job and I'm going to create a company about grief and I'm going to become a grief activist and this is what I'm going to do. So 2019, pre-pandemic, not a single soul in the world was mentioning the word grief, but I felt so certain that the world would need it because I knew I wasn't the only one who felt so unseen and who felt the consequences of it. And I think really that's why the show has taken off so beautifully over the years. I'm in season four. I had a line of empathy cards, why I've been asked to speak and write, why I have this collaboration with this publisher to write this book. I mean, hopefully I'm a good communicator, but I think it speaks more to the universality of our hunger to grapple with this thing that is a hundred percent of us experience multiple times in our lives. There's actually beauty. There can be beauty in the grappling with it, mm-hmm. but because we don't grapple with it, we suffer unnecessarily. And I just sort of in 2019 was like, I've had it. Yeah. We got to do something. Thus sort of born the grief activist role that I've been in for the last couple of years. Wow. Wow. Right. That's a lot. Yeah. I know when I go back and sum up that story, I'm like, that's a lot. That's a lot. Yeah, that's a and lot. you know what I, and I keep thinking to myself because I had David Richmond on, he wrote the cycle of lies and yeah. his conclusion throughout the book and having the stories of cancer and how it was affecting people and death that it's almost, and I think it doesn't matter how the person dies. I just feel like death is such a scary unknown for so many that yeah if that that's the underlying thing that drives our behavior for grief also i yeah. think and i think maybe people weren't 
when talking about it with you because, oh, maybe that'll happen to me, right? If I hang out with a widow, am I going to oh, lose for my sure. husband? Subconsciously, of course. There is a definite contagion. There is a contagion feeling. You feel as a, I mean, I felt this as a widow, but I imagine other people experiencing profound, like child loss. You know, I've had a lot of friends, unfortunately, and guests who've experienced child loss, like Mindy, our mutual person, mm-hmm. but for other kinds of losses. And there is this sort of contagion. And I think a lot of our suffering sort of culture, just to be a little out there, get on my box here, is I think our denial of our, the temporariness yes. of ourselves here yes. is, has such catastrophic effects. It affects our, I think it's a lot responsible for a lot of the othering that happens culturally, this kind of divisiveness. I think it has a lot of consequences to our lack of appreciation for the climate and the, and the life force, sustaining force that this planet gives to us that we are extracting. I think it has a consequence for us to not show up and be human to human in mm-hmm. so many different roles. And I think a lot of that is this drive to av- avoid, avoid thinking or talking about death, except 100%. You know, I mean, we haven't gotten to cryogenic yet. 100% of us are going to die. And if you can think about that as a truth, for me... Not that I don't suffer and have hard days and I'm not devastated and I've experienced smaller losses since. So I'm not saying I'm shiny, happy people all the time. But for me, when I really came to grips, I think because I made this call to action to do this work, when I really came to grips with the sort of impermanence, right? And Mm -hmm. that change is our only constant and that loss is a part of life. I have a way of appreciating awe and wonder and joy in ways that I never did before. And I was a pretty glass half full kind of gal, I would say. Yeah. But I think, you know, to Dave Richmond's, to other people's sort of thing, all the palliative doctors I've talked about, the spiritual leaders I've had the privilege of talking with and working with. When we actually begin to face those losses, when we begin to face the inevitability of death, I mean, it can open up kind of rich wonder and beauty about mm-hmm. like, oh, we're sitting here having a beautiful conversation across technology, you know, right across the country about something really important. Before this, I was able to walk down to the coffee shop and I happen to live now in, in California and see the Pacific Ocean mm-hmm. and some flowers as I took my walk. Like, yeah, again, I'm not happy, go lucky, be grateful, don't feel your feelings, but I think I see those things a lot more because I consistently and continually put myself in conversations that, rem- that really remind you true, yeah. the sort of both and. Yeah, yeah. I think that's it. Yeah. The whole reason we self-medicate and the the doctor who the don't talk about do. it. And that was a really interesting point. The doctors don't talk about the grief and a lot of doctors become doctors because so Dr. Akil said on my podcast, says, well, I became a doctor because once you're a doctor, you know it all. You can't possibly get sick because you're the doctor. But that's a, that's a whole Except, nope. thing, right? It's a whole yeah. thing. But it's really interesting that that's like the, you know, we all have to flip a switch, I think, to figure out how to keep that, you know. Yeah. I mean, I think ah. 
sometimes, unfortunately, for a lot of us, again, because think about it, we're, it's in the air we breathe. It's like our culture, everything in our culture seeps productivity, moving on, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Emo any emotion besides happiness is, you know, a pathology. So of course we're all, and then if you're in a particular field like medicine, your job is to fix and cure, right? So of course we're all sort of what I call grief illiterate. Like, I don't think there's a need to sort of judge ourselves or other people. And if you can pause to acknowledge that mm -hmm. and then say, but how is this serving me or not? How am I numbing out mm -hmm. or not? how am I missing out on the nuance and the beauty of all the things that change, which is everything all the time, you know? Yeah. I heard some statistic the other day, like our entire cellular level regenerates every seven yeah. years. Like we are literally a different person, right. you know? So, but so I think there's the both and of, of course, do, of course, doctors have that belief. Of course, most of us have this belief because it's in the air we breathe or the water we swim, whatever the metaphor is. And that's why I do this work. Mm. But that isn't serving us. That's inviting us then to have a hard feeling and try to numb it out. That's encouraging us to not show up for other people because we don't know how to do it. Like the consequences of us not facing it are hard. And I hope by talking about it on the show, I'm going to at least make one person not have to learn this the hard right. way. Right. You know, that they're not going to necessarily, and it is what it is if that's what it is. But if, if you don't have to wait till you have some profound death loss or catastrophic injury or chronic illness or something like that, if you can start to connect with the kind of complexity and the nuance and the everyday presence of our experiences of grief, then we might feel better equipped when that yeah. next big event happens. And by the way, I do this for a living. I face smaller losses since even, you know, I thought I sort of knew everything after losing my husband and then I lost my friend, Joe. This is not a, like, you just learn one thing and then you're fine. Right. This is the ex exact opposite point, which is, but now I don't hold myself to a standard that I'm not going to fall apart, that I'm not going to have sleepless nights and that there's not mm. going to be a physiological and, and relationship and secondary losses. And right. that's the difference. It's not that I'm like, know it now so I can just not feel the hard things. Mm -hmm. It's that I don't criticize myself in the same ways that I did. And I also have learned what does help me and I'm better able to advocate for what those things are that will help ease the suffering. Grief sucks. My role as a grief activist is not to make grief go away. Grief is hard. Mm -hmm. That's just the nature of hard. My goal in being a grief activist and kind of addressing our grief illiteracy is to reduce the unnecessary suffering that we have in grief. Or sometimes I just say to make grief suck less. You make know, grief suck less. In our everyday Let me there. ask you a question yeah. then. Yeah. So like for if somebody's listening and Okay. I can use an example. I have a dear friend whose father recently died. She's having a really tough time with it. And you know, I'm, I'm doing studying. I'm talking to people. You think I would know what to say? I don't. What, how do you help? Yeah. How do you help people with grief? What would you say? Yeah, this is a big, this is probably the most, my two most frequent asked questions is when does it going to end? which unfortunately my answer is it doesn't really end. It, it transforms. Mm -hmm. It just, be, it goes from being your whole story to a part of your story. And the second is what do I do or what do I say? What's the perfect thing? And here's maybe the unpopular answer. There isn't one answer. Mm. 
Really, our job as a grief supporter is to accompany. Accompany. Okay. We are really there to accompany. The most important, it kind of circles back to where we started in the beginning. And this just isn't my experience. This is sort of like writ large. I think sort of the community of grief thinkers and writers and theorists agree. Our first job in supporting somebody in their grief is to acknowledge and honor them just as they. Okay. So if you need a phrase, don't do that. It's going to, they're going to be at a better place or everything happens for a reason. And if you need to say something, what if you said, this is really hard. I can only imagine this is really hard and you must be feeling all kinds of feelings and I'm just here to listen. Mm -hmm. And that listening might be them being in silence. That might be them raging against the machine. That might Mm -hmm. be them crying. But when we show up in a perform, when we show up either nervous, Mm -hmm. our energy transfers to people. Yeah. And you know, when somebody shows up agitated or nervous, then you feel. Yeah. You get a little. You feel discomfort, like the energy, right? Yeah. So check your energy at the door. That's my number one. Check Check this notion that it's your job to fix the person. Yeah. Their pain is not a problem. Their pain is a normal response to loss. Part of where I think we go haywire. And by the way, I do this for a living and I still get it wrong sometimes too. So like also let go of perfection. But part of I think where we struggle is we show up with the mentality of I have to say the right thing or do the right thing. And the only way I'm helping them is if I quote unquote make their pain go away. And I want to be the person that does that, right? And I want to be the person that does. Again, I'm saying this in a sort of sarcastic, loud tone. I don't think anybody's showing up with that kind of ego. But we buy into this that emotional pain, that emotional pain is bad so that we must alleviate. Yeah. And especially when we're talking about somebody in the early weeks and months of their grief, Mm -hmm. the most important thing we can do is to see their pain and hold their pain Mm. and to, and to not fix it. Their pain is the exact right expression as hard as it is to witness and hold their fear and their anger and their resentment and whatever stories they might be saying, I'm never going to be happy again or whatever they're going to say. This is their temporary expression of this massive change, this shredding of this manuscript, Mm -hmm. you know, back to my metaphor that has happened. So checking your energy at the door is ditching the assumption that it's your job to fix. I say ditch the fix, right? And then show up and accompany that person. That means listening validating, affirming. You don't have to have gone through that experience. You definitely don't need to start telling them your grief story. Yeah. But what you could do in the affirmate, first of all, you can just hear and mirror back. I I hear you say that it's hard to sleep and I can imagine that's really hard or whatever they say. It's always good to validate. You could say, I don't know if this helped, you know, if a person says, I just feel so angry all the time and I don't know what's wrong with me and you've been through some loss, you could say something like, don't tell them your whole loss story, but you could say, you know, I remember feeling a lot of anger too. And I've heard that that's pretty normal. So maybe don't judge yourself for feeling that that's, that's pretty normal. So we can validate and use our own story only in as much as it helps them feel seen in their story. So I think that's ego, right? We need to drop our own ego. We have to drop the ego. We have to drop the ego and we have to drop this, this assumption and this, this fix. I would say a third key component. I have a grief motto, show up, shut up and listen, parentheses and keep showing up. up. So it's the show up. 
just show up. Text, mail, mail delivery, bills, in person, FaceTime, video message. I like things that the person can listen to on their own time. So、mm-hmm. I sometimes send people video. I do like video recording on my phone and text it to them. So that oh, that's nice. Time, maybe they're not ready. Yeah. So do something like that. So that's the showing up. The shutting up is you're not. You don't have to say the right thing to fix their pain because you're not. So your job is to shut up and listen. And when you listen, you start to listen to what they need. Part of their suffering might be they feel overwhelmed. They don't know how to get their kids to school, or they don't know how to deal with the financials, or they don't know. So when you start to listen, then you might start to think about, oh, well, I heard you say this is a struggle. I wonder if me taking your kid to school every day next week would help give you some space. Would that be helpful? Oh, I like so that. So when we listen,、yeah. when we listen, we listen for the practical because all of us want to do something tangible. Yeah, but we also listen for their. Experience, and then we can mirror that back. And then that last part, the parenthetical that keeps showing up, I think is really important. This is back to our kind of grief illiterate story of we have a grief, it's short, we go through checklists, and we're done. Yeah, so keep okay, showing up is hard. Okay, I'm good. I'll wait、yeah. till they're better, and then we'll go.、On. I got all the cards, which my the cards I got were mostly horrible, which is why I created my own empathy card. <laughs> In the first, at the funeral, or at the memorial, or in the first three weeks, and then I didn't hear from.、People. Right, you don't hear from people ever again. And then, and then they, and then the, and then people think, well, if I bring it up or I show up, I'm going to make them upset, as if we're not thinking about the people who are suffering. But then that also implicitly tells me, oh, I'm, I'm supposed to be over it by now because people aren't checking in; they're back to doing their thing. Yeah, they don't. I'm a burden, right? Yeah. So they keep showing up. Can look like a lot of things. It can be just a random card or a note that you send in the mail.、Mm-hmm. It could be something like, "I just saw,、mm-hmm. you know, a butterfly out my window, and it really reminded me of that time we all went butterfly watching." I don't know. I'm just making a silly story, right? Tell a story, or it could be like, "I know the anniversary of that person's death is coming up. I wonder if you have plans. Is there something I can do to support you?" Wow. Tell a favorite memory, a favorite story, or just say thinking of you.、Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't have to be elaborate. But keep showing up because in the keeping showing up, you're helping to continue normalizing the fact that grief is messy and nonlinear, and that they're probably still reconstructing the story of their lives, and they feel very, you know, grief and loss is very untethering, and it's、mm-hmm. very isolating. Yes. And so the more we can keep showing up in these different ways, whether it's sharing stories or checking in or doing something practical. We're helping the person feel tethered as they continue to rewrite、yes. the story of their lives. So that keeping showing up, it doesn't have to be a big grand gesture. It's actually just in the act of doing it、oh. that you're having this profound impact. That makes so much. I could just. That's. I feel. I can almost see me or someone throwing a line, a rope out、yeah. to the water、yeah. to grab this. Because yeah, you do. Everything's up in the air. You feel somebody picked you up and turned you upside down, and you're supposed to、yeah. reintegrate back in,、yeah. as if nothing、like、happened.、That. But things are different.、Yeah. You can't make that phone call. You can't talk to that person. That person's not going to. And people、up. say, "Well, why aren't they reaching out?" It's like everything in our culture and everything because of people's lack of showing up is a reinforcement that your pain is a problem. Yeah, that we can't bear it. That it's too much. So to put the onus on the griever to reach—I mean, I do encourage grievers that I work with to articulate what they need and ask for support. And I call 
I use this scuba diving metaphor I learned when I was became a diver at 12, which was buddy breathing, right? I do encourage buddy breathing, buddy breathing. I love it. But it's really beholden on the grief supporters to sort of make visible that that's safe and okay, Mm -hmm. that I'm here. And we do that by showing up in these small little ways and moments over, by the way, years. My phone is not enough, but is littered with the death anniversaries of a lot of people, of my friends, like their mother or their child or their something so that I can try to remember if I can't get a card in the mail ahead of time, I can at least send a text or a voice memo or a post or a something. So if it's somebody important to you that lost somebody, put a tickler in your calendar Mm-hmm. Even if it's just like a once a month, send Judy something, a note, a card, a video message to take them for oh ask God. if they want to go for a walk. Rather than do what I've done, it's just kind of like, oh God, that was painful. Let's just. But also yeah. I hear you doing a lot of like self-flagellation. And I just <laughs> want to say to you and to the listeners, you know, as we move, as we move kind of towards the end of the conversation, <laughs> I don't want this to go without saying, of course we do. Again, yeah. How would we, have we learned any other way? We haven't. And that's why I do this work. So, and again, I don't always get it right. It's not like if you ask all of my friends, does Lisa show up for me all the time at the frequency that I need and I want? Probably not. I mean, I I think I'm better than I used to be. Oh, for sure. I hope in two years I'll be better than now. So there, the, you, it's, there's not really a usefulness in the, oh, I did it wrong or I said the wrong thing or I didn't show up. There's, it's never too late. If that person lost their parent 10 years ago, you can still show up and say, I've been thinking about what it might feel like to be, walk in the world without a mom or a dad or whoever it was. And I just wanted you to know that I'm holding you in my heart. And I realize I maybe haven't always offered that. So if you ever want to talk about it or share stories about your mom, I'd love to listen. You know, like, the, underlying, the underlying theme here, besides the one is we're all like a little freaked out by death. The next one yeah. is Really what I'm finding in like the Ryan Holiday Stoics and all the stuff and the books and all the people I've had on and now you is really we're, we're meant perhaps, perhaps to show up in this world as unselfishly as we can in order to be of service to others. And perhaps if we weren't so busy doing and more aware and feeling, and yes, being productive and being good stewards and all that good stuff. But perhaps if we were more in tune with the fact that we're all connected and going ahead and yeah. saying hello yeah. to someone, going ahead and picking up that piece of trash on the side of the road, volunteer, whatever it is, just showing up unselfishly, perhaps that that would already alleviate a lot of what's happening around grief. I think so. I think the more we can see our shared humanity, the less we other, the less we judge others. And to be honest, the less we judge ourselves. So when we show up with kindness and compassion and without judgment or assumption of fixing somebody in their grief, we are incrementally teaching ourselves well, my grief then matters too. Mm. And when a friend reaches out to offer me support, instead of feeling guilty or a burden, I'm going to know what it feels like to have been on the other end. I think the more that we receive yeah. help, the better we are at giving help. And the mm-hmm. more we give help, the better we are at receiving help. And so I do think 
kind of those acts of kindness or those ways of showing up as human beings Mm -hmm. being with one another, the more that kind of cycles in that sort of positive direction. But it starts with us acknowledging that this change and loss and grief are universal and that the consequence of that, the pain, the existential, cognitive, physical, spiritual, relational consequences of those losses are normal. Normal. And they're also temporary. Yeah. And they will evolve. But to deny them is the danger. To deny them through our words, through our actions, through our policies, through our systems, that's that's the unnecessary pain. That's Absolutely. the unnecessary suffering. So to to begin with acknowledging your own and somebody close to you, however long it's been, is a great place to start. Ah, so well said. Yes. Yes. What is next for you? Where are you going? Because your, your podcast is amazing. I think whether you've been through recent grief or not, you everyone needs to listen to your podcast. Grief is a oh, sneaky bitch. You. Grief is a sneaky bitch. Yep. We're in our fourth, we're in our fourth season. You can find it on all your favorite platforms. It's fabulous. Actually dropping an episode tomorrow. I I release every other week. So that's going to continue. I'm in season four. I really honestly cannot imagine not doing this show. It's been such a profound vehicle for my work as a grief activist, but also I've learned so much. So Mm -hmm. as a lifelong learner, it's sort of like I get to, you know, I'm sure you can relate. I can totally relate. I love learning from people like you. Yes. So I think that will continue. You can find that ongoing or like, as I said, on all the platforms or just at my website, lisakeefoffer.com. I am in the final stages of getting my first final manuscript to the publisher for my book, Grief is a Sneaky Bitch, which, you know, because of the publishing world probably won't come out until, you know, I don't know, something like fall 2024. I don't know. The publishing cycle is a is a wild ride, but I do that. I do a lot of keynote speaking at different events. I am just secured a TED Talk, so I'm <gasps> going to be recording that in early 2023. So hopefully you'll be able to see That's that. Amazing. That's amazing. Grief. That's on grief literacy. So I think it'll be a hopefully a useful vehicle yeah. to kind of continue the work that I'm doing. I do work with companies, etc. So we'll see what 2023 unfolds for me. I'm just so passionate. And I continue to serve as a professor. Yeah. Yeah. Even though I've moved it. So now I teach the course online. So I'll continue to be serving as professor of loss and grief for the school of social work at University of Texas. I love that work. I've had a couple of people approach me about trying to take that content and make it available to the general public. Oh, I haven't, I just don't have like, you don't have the bandwidth. I can hire I mean, if I could hire some staff and some team to do that, I would do that. So that could be coming, but I continue to partner with different organizations and do speaking like this, but also doing kind of platform speaking for companies. I'm going to be doing something with the Othering and Belonging Institute at UC Berkeley next month oh, with wow. my dear friend, John Powell. So you can kind of find me, but if you probably the best way for people to keep track is to just subscribe to my newsletter, which you can find at lisakeefoffer.com. And that way you'll know if I'm coming to your town or if I'm doing something live where you can watch the, watch a talk or the recording. And of course, yeah, subscribe to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. Yeah. And let's not forget, you're still a mom. I'm also a mom. She is now in college. Ah! I'm, I know, which is amazing. She's an incredible human being. So yes, I continue to be a mom as well, which is a gift of a lifetime. And uh, yeah, thanks so much, Wendy, for having me. I love, as you know, nerding out on this subject. So I so appreciate the time.
Thank you so much. And I'm just so glad we both talked about, oh, yeah, I went into social work. However, I did it just because I could write a really good first sentence and a really good conclusion. And then I knew I could get through college. <laughs> and I did a little bit of group homework and things like that, which actually have served me well moving forward. And the speaking and the empathizing and the being able to mirror back and all those little tricks you learn. Yeah. And I'm just so appreciative of the fact that you took it a little more seriously and you got your MSW and you are doing this work now that obviously whether you believe in God or a higher power or something, the universe I truly believe has sent you to where you are. Oh, this was a per, I mean, I feel, I mean, I've always worked in nonprofits, so I've always worked in mission driven organizations, Mm -hmm. which is one of the things I've loved. Mm -hmm. But this I mean, it is work. Let's not joke around. I do a lot of jobs and do a lot of speak. So it's, it's work in the, like, in that sense. Right. But it feels, I am called to this. This is my purpose. I couldn't be doing anything else. It definitely feels next level. It's not just, I'm working in a mission driven organization. This is what I'm meant to be doing. This was your full contract um, when you showed up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this was it. So I feel very grateful because not everybody figures out that kind of alignment. So I I do feel, I do have moments of gratitude pretty much every day that I, I get to be doing this work. So thank you for giving me a platform to talk about it. Thank you so much for being willing to talk to me. I really appreciate it and bringing this to the second wind audience and hopefully they will jump over to you as well and have us both in your, in their little apps or on their computer or wherever it is, because you can't escape it, especially in the second half of life. We are around it more and more and more and more just by the fact we are older. Plain and simple. We're alive. Oh, thank you so much, Lisa, for your time today. So grateful to you. And until next time, breathe in your second wind. Thank you for listening today. I hope that something you heard made you smile, made you think, and made you feel. If these incredible stories empowered you, awakened you, or left you feeling inspired, make sure to share with a friend and write us a review on iTunes so we can continue to change lives through this content. Make sure you tag us while you're listening on our Facebook group, My Second Wind, or hit the link in the show notes to join the conversation. Until next time, go ahead and breathe in your second wind.